Hey, good morning, everyone. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. Today, we begin a new series as we make our way through an Old Testament book. And this is going to be the first time that we're going through an Old Testament book on Sunday mornings. And Nehemiah is full of spiritual truth that can be applied to so many areas of our lives. So I can't wait for us to apply the, the principles of this historical memoir. I'm, I'm really excited for the story to come up right to our present moments and to speak to our daily experiences. Uh, God's word is going to speak to us as a people of God today from the people of God who lived back then. Uh, This book is going to teach us about prayer, revival, leadership, spiritual warfare, community, our identity as a people of God, working hard, working together, uh, building towards something, disagreement, unity, and so much more along the way. And so just as we begin, here's what I want to do. I want to set some historical context for Nehemiah before we jump into chapter one. Uh, You need to understand where the people of Israel were at the time of Nehemiah. So just going back a little ways, let's recall how the people of God, who are God's chosen people, the Jews, uh, they are a people that God called to himself, beginning with a man named Abraham and then to his son Isaac, and then to his son Jacob, also known as Israel, and then to his sons, 12 sons who became leaders over the 12 tribes of Israel that dwelled in the land of God's promise, the land of Israel, with the city of Jerusalem being at the heart of Israel. These were the people of Israel, God's chosen people. Yet, God's people had trouble obeying God at many times in their lives. Is there anything new here today? (laughs) Right. And so God would send prophets. And when the people would, would not respond to his prophets, God would allow for Israel to be corrected by other means. And so at one point in the history of the Jews... Uh, they were taken out of their land and placed into captivity. And that is where the Israelites found themselves for 70 years. They were captive exiles. Israel had been taken captive by the Babylonians during the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And Daniel is a book that is set around that time period. But Babylon was eventually overthrown by the Persians during the reign of Cyrus the Great, king of Persia. So when the Persian Empire comes and sets up shop, they had all these exiles that were living in the land. And so the king of Persia began to make decrees that would allow for the people of Israel to go back to their land so long as they stayed in submission to the Persian Empire. So the book of Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther, they all go together to speak about this period of time in the history of Israel. In fact, in the Hebrew Bible, we find that Ezra and Nehemiah make up one book. And Esther, although in our Bibles comes after Nehemiah, 
It actually took place before Ezra and Nehemiah when a Jewish woman named Esther married a Persian king and was used by God to save her people. Now, as I said, these books give accounts to a time period in the history of Israel that we would call the post-exilic period. And post means after. And we know from 1 Peter that to be in exile means to be living in a place that is not your homeland. But by the decrees of the Persian government, the people of God were allowed to go home. The Jews were going to go back into the land that God had promised after they had been taken out of it because of God's discipline. But because of the covenant that he had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the people then go back to the land after 70 years. And in that time, we, th- we see three stages of the people of God under three different leaders going back into Israel. The first leader was a man named Zerubbabel. Everybody say Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. Okay, you got it. And he went back to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. But the temple that Zerubbabel built was nothing like the former temple that had been built by King Solomon. Solomon's temple was destroyed when Jerusalem was laid siege by the Babylonians, but at least the people were now back in their land, and they could rebuild out of the ruins. And then the next leader to take a group of people back into Jerusalem was Ezra. And under Ezra's leadership, what he found is that the people, the first wave of people that went with Zerubbabel, that, yeah, they had built the temple, but they had begun to live in sin. And so Ezra reinstates the laws of God upon the rediscovery of the word of God, and a renewal happens among the people as they repent and turn back to God. And then we have Nehemiah this third leader who we're going to look at in his book. He was a cupbearer of the king of Persia who was given permission to go back into Jerusalem, and his purpose was to rebuild the walls around the city of Jerusalem in order to keep that city protected in order that the people might be able to dwell securely in the land that God had promised. So, There's some history just to get us started as we make our way through this book of Nehemiah. We're going to be unpacking some history as we're going through this Old Testament book. But here is going to be the main focus and the main direction of our study through the book of Nehemiah. Is that in the book of Nehemiah, we're going to see this all pointing to two very important aspects of our faith. One is that this book will tell us about ourselves. See, this book is going to help us to see the kind of people that we ought to be. The ways that we can come together in times of trouble. How we can rediscover and build out who we are as a people of God. And the second thing that this book is going to tell us about is Jesus. Is that It's true, Jesus doesn't come in the flesh for another four to five hundred years after the time of Nehemiah, but Jesus, all through this book, 
We will see Jesus pictured and personified throughout this book, especially in the person of Nehemiah. And we're going to see Jesus' influence throughout this book, so get ready to have this story pointing to those two very important things, which is who we are as a people and who Jesus is as our God. It's going to point us to the gospel. So you ready to begin? All right, let's do it. Let me pray, and we're going to jump into Nehemiah chapter 1. And so, Lord Jesus, we come before you. And God, we thank you that your word tells us everything that we need to know about ourselves and everything that we need to know about you. And so God, I pray that this book of Nehemiah would help us to bring the real you to the real Jesus. God, teach us through the life of Nehemiah and through the spiritual leader that he was today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So this is what Nehemiah chapter one, verses one and two begin with saying, it says, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Han and I, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. So the first thing we see in verse one is that these are the words of Nehemiah. And this book is unique in that this book actually is written in the first person. Nehemiah is telling this story from his perspective using the words I, right? And this is great because what we're going to get a good look into is the thoughts and the feelings and the actions of this great spiritual leader named Nehemiah. And then the next thing we see is that Nehemiah is the son of Hakaliah. And look, family genealogy was and is something that is very important to the Jews. Uh, what genealogy is, and I know when you're reading the Old Testament, you can get into a section that's like a lot of genealogies. So, whew, lots of names that I can't pronounce, right? Um, but what genealogy does is it traces family history. See, but for the Jews, genealogy traces something even greater. It traces God's redemptive history. In fact, there's an entire chapter, uh, chapter seven of genealogy, and when we get to it, we're gonna read it. I'm gonna struggle to pronounce all the names, and what we're gonna see there is we're gonna see the value of genealogy in the Bible. But the next thing we see in verse one is the setting of the story. We're given the date and the location of this story. It says, now it happened in the month of Kislev. And the Jews, they had their own calendar, right? And so on our calendar, this would be the end of the year, like November, December. It also says there that it was in the 20th year. Now this year is in reference to how many years the Persian king Artaxerxes had reigned. It was the 20th year of his reign, and Nehemiah worked in the royal courts of King Artaxerxes as a cupbearer. It also tells us that it was in Susa, the capital. So Susa was the capital of Persia, and it was a citadel. It was a fortified city with the palace of the king being there. And so this is what would happen. The the king would go and live there during the winter months. And so this is where Nehemiah found himself, 
living in Susa during the 20th year of King Artaxerxes in the month of Kislev. Now, why are we spending so much time on the dates and the time of this book? Because one thing that you're gonna notice here just right off the beginning is that when Nehemiah tells us the time of year that it was, he uses both the Jewish calendar and the year that the Persian king reigned, which shows us something about Nehemiah, is that he was in exile. He lived between two worlds. He was a Jewish man living in a Persian city and working for a Persian king. And as we'll see in just a moment, Nehemiah's heart and passion were for the people of God and for the land of God's promise. And look, this ties into what we've learned throughout First and Second Peter, is that we are God's elect exiles. We live between two worlds. We have a dual citizenship. We, we are living for heaven, our eternal home, and yet we live like exiles here in this world. And so just even Nehemiah's uh, life is speaking to what we often feel as we live in this world. This is not our true home. We are just passing through. We are going to another place. And so we live in that tension, and Nehemiah feels that as he says both the month of Kislev and the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Then in verse 2, we see that some news is brought to Nehemiah from his brother. In Nehemiah chapter seven, that chapter I said that has genealogy, we find out that Nehemiah had two brothers, Hanani and Hananiah. So you've got Nehemiah, Hanani, Hananiah, the sons of Hakaliah. Man, I feel bad for that mom, right? <laughs> if I don't already get my kids' names confused, that's... That's difficult. But for some reason, Hanani made a trip to Judah. Judah was the southern region of Israel where the city of Jerusalem is located. And Hananiah came back to Susa, the capital city of Persia. And this was no short trip, you guys. This was about an 800-mile journey. And so when Hanani, and there were no like cars, right, with gas stations to stop along the way with mini-marts, um, so when Hananiah came back from his trip to Jerusalem, he's with a group of certain men, it says, and Nehemiah wants to know everything about this trip to Israel. Nehemiah's like, tell me, tell me, what did you see? What was it like? Was it awesome? Tell me everything. It's kind of how I felt when I came back from Israel this summer. And guys, there's just something about Israel and that city, Jerusalem, that makes people want to know what was it like, right? Because there's no, really, there's no reason really to explain why there's such an interest that comes into the heart and mind of a follower of God when you're talking about that place and that land and that city, which by the way, on Tuesday, I have a call to set up our tour as a church to go to the land of Israel which is pretty exciting. So stay tuned. I know people have been wondering about that. But here's what we see in verse two, is that Nehemiah is so eager to hear the report from his brother. And th this is the report he wants to find out. He says, 
tell me concerning the Jews who had escaped and who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem? These are his questions. How are the Jews who had returned from captivity, are they doing good? What's their condition? Are they well? What, what about the city? What is, what's the current condition of Jerusalem? He's saying, Hananiah, is it anything like our parents used to tell us about? Right? Because you have to understand, these are, these are guys that grew up in exile. And so verse 3, it says, they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The walls of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Not what Nehemiah was expecting to hear. Not the condition that he had envisioned the people of God and the city of God being in. The people who had survived the exile were in great trouble and shame. What? The wall of the city is broken down and the gates are destroyed by fire. Like, really? There's been two waves of people to go back into the land. Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple. Ezra rebuilt the people. Now you're saying that the people are in trouble and shame and that there is no wall even to protect the people, no gates for people to come in and out of safely. And when Nehemiah heard this report, he was crushed. Verse four says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So when Nehemiah heard about the condition of the people and the condition of the city, this rocked him. As soon as those words came into Nehemiah's ears, he had a pit in his stomach. He had an ache in his heart. His knees became weak underneath him. The news laid him out for days. He had to sit down. He wept, he mourned, and then he continued in fasting and prayer before the God of heaven. Now, this is telling us something about the kind of man that Nehemiah was. He was a man who cared about the things that God cares about. Nehemiah was a man who had in his heart and his soul a connection to God's people. When he heard that God's people were troubled and that the walls were broken down, Nehemiah's heart became troubled and his soul became broken. You see, Nehemiah's inner man matched the condition of the people in the city. He was broken, he was troubled. And in this place of heavy burden, Nehemiah begins to cry out to the Lord. When Nehemiah felt like there was nothing that he could do, he sought the one who could do something about the situation. Nehemiah understood something. He understood this, that God's heart for people and that God's heart for the city was so much bigger than his own. And that's why Nehemiah prayed. He prayed so that he could learn God's heart. He prayed so that he could align with God's will. And in verses five through 11, we have Nehemiah's prayer recorded for us. And so for the remainder of our time this morning, 
we will be analyzing this prayer that Nehemiah prayed. And what it's gonna do is it's gonna encourage us to be people of prayer. And so there's five things that I see out of Nehemiah's prayer that we're gonna look at today. The first is that Nehemiah exalts God who is a covenant keeper. Second, he humbles himself with his fellow man for having sinned. Third, he confesses his own corruption and he embodies the sins of his people by lamenting. The fourth thing is that in this prayer, he asks God to remember his promise of mercy. And five, he presents himself as a leader ready to do something about the condition of his people and of the condition of the city. So you ready to look at these five things? You guys all with me? Excellent. Verse five says this. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So Nehemiah begins his prayer in a way that all of us should begin our prayer with, is to acknowledge the one that you're talking to. He calls God, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. And that's a very appropriate way to acknowledge God for who he is. He is Lord, meaning he's the king and the master of our lives. He is God. He is the eternal one who was and is and is to come. He is before all things and he is in all things. And he is in heaven and that is his holy dwelling place. And he is great and awesome. Speaking of his glorious nature. But what Nehemiah is doing is he's not just calling upon the person or the nature of God. He's also calling upon the activities of God. God is the Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who, you see the who, who keeps covenants and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Do you know this God who is a covenant keeper? So just by virtue of the fact that people were coming out of captivity and back into the land is evidence that God keeps covenant, right? He made a covenant with Israel and he has kept that covenant. So while Israel may have had trouble keeping their covenant at times, you guys read the Old Testament? Did Israel ever struggle to keep covenant? Yes. Has God ever struggled to keep covenant? No. See, to break covenant would go against God's character. God is steadfast in love. God made a covenant with the Jewish people and he has kept his covenant with those who love him and keep his commandments. God is a covenant keeper and therefore we should exalt him as such just like Nehemiah does here. Actually, we can exalt God even more because Nehemiah is calling upon God and saying you're the one who keeps covenant, but guess what? He's talking about the old covenant. You do know that there is a new and better covenant, one that Nehemiah didn't even know about yet. Nehemiah asked God to keep the old covenant, but church, we have a better covenant, a new covenant based on better promises that God will keep forever with his steadfast love. 
because it is a covenant that he has enacted by the steadfast love and sacrifice of his only son, Jesus, the son of God who died on a cross. And so secondly, we see that Nehemiah humbles himself with his fellow man for having sinned. Look at verse six with me. It says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servants that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. So here's the thing. Nehemiah knows that God is hearing his prayers as he prays. But do you notice that Nehemiah asked God to let God's ear be attentive and for his eyes to be opened? See, Nehemiah really wants God to hear this prayer. And and he really wants God to see the condition of the people. You know what? God loves it when his people really want God to hear and really want God to see. This is a prayer that God is pleased, as it says in the Psalms, to incline his ear to hear, to, to open his eyes, to search out the earth. This is a prayer that God is eager to search out in order that he might help his people. And so God is pleased and eager to answer Nehemiah's prayer. But we notice that Nehemiah comes with such eagerness, asking for the eyes and ears to be open. And then what Nehemiah does is he begins his prayer with a humble confession as a servant. Nehemiah is coming as a servant humbly before the Lord, and God loves that too. You see, before Nehemiah even gets into asking God to do something for him, Nehemiah begins by asking God to do something in him. A lot of times when we pray, we want God to do things for us. We should always begin, God, would you do something in me? So Nehemiah asked God to forgive sin. Day and night, Nehemiah cried out to God in prayer and fasting. In fact, it's estimated that Nehemiah spent four months in prayer before he even did anything as to leading the people to rebuild the wall. David Guzik makes a note in his commentary that the wall in Jerusalem will only take 52 days to build. Yet that 52-day project had a four-month foundation of prayer. So Nehemiah understood the power of prayer. He understood that if they were gonna build a wall, it needed to have a foundation of prayer. And again, this all started with a prayer of confession. Nehemiah was saying the same thing about sin that God says about sin, which is that sin destroys people. Do you know that? Sin destroys people. And Nehemiah knew that the trouble and the shame and the destruction that was upon the the people and upon the city was largely due to sin. The people were not loving God. The people were not keeping God's commandments. God was faithful, but the people were being unfaithful. And Nehemiah confesses this to God. And notice here that Nehemiah confesses his own sin and also the sins of the people, which tells us of the kind of spiritual leader that he is. A spiritual leader that God will use greatly needs to do both. A spiritual leader is one who recognizes the shame and trouble that comes from their own sin. 
but is also someone who can recognize the shame and trouble that comes from other people's sin. You see, if you only see your own sin, you won't be any help to people. And if you only see the sins of other people, you won't be any help to yourself. A spiritual leader is someone who can recognize that all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God, and that together we can come and we can say, we have sinned. Together we can look to God. We can say, you God, and you alone can hear and look upon your servants. You can forgive us of our sins. We have sinned against you. Would that be our prayer, church? I want that to be my prayer. I want that to be your prayer where, where we know we're, we're not praying prayer. I thank you, God, that I'm not like that person. <laughs> but that together we would beat our chest and say, oh, be merciful to us who are sinners. I, I'm right there with you guys, right? There's a time to pray this. I have sinned. There's a time to pray, they have sinned. But this is a prayer that God will respond boldly to every time. We have sinned. We have sinned. And so Nehemiah confesses his own corruption and embodies the sins of his people by lamenting. This is the third point. Verse seven says, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. The third point in verse seven is connecting to what I'm saying here about us confessing our sins collectively. See, Nehemiah found himself so spiritually connected to his people that when the people sinned, it was as if Nehemiah sinned. That when the people were corrupt, it was as if Nehemiah was corrupt. That when we're not keeping the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that God has commanded through Moses, Nehemiah wasn't leaving himself out of that. He wasn't the pointing the finger, because when you point a finger, you've got three pointing back at you. Nehemiah says, we have acted this way. We have sinned against you, God. So again, a true spiritual leader. If anyone in here desires to be used by God as a spiritual leader. I know I do. I pray that you would too. If you wanna be a spiritual leader, whether it's in your church or in your home or in your work or wherever it might be, to be a spiritual leader is one who sees themselves among the multitude of sinners. Nehemiah was a man with a nature just like everyone that he was leading. Nehemiah knew his own corrupt nature and actions before God, and because of that, he was able to embody the sins of the people by lamenting. Lamenting, that's an interesting word that we don't often use, and that I don't think the church experiences enough. Lamenting is to have deep sorrow, intense mourning, and it's, it's usually in connection to a very large issue that is complicated and overwhelming. So what Nehemiah does is he confesses his own need of God. He saw the overwhelming need of God among the multitudes of people, and this made him desperate for God. Do you see the need for God in our world? Do you see times of trouble and times of shame, times of brokenness? 
Yes, clearly we do. This should lead us to a people who would lament and pray before our God. Nehemiah lamented before the Lord for four months, which prepared him to be the humble leader that he was, who confessed sin and embodied the sins of others. And the fourth point, and you kind of know the pace I'm going to. I've got two more points. You guys all still with me? The fourth point from verses eight and nine says, remember the word that you have commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them in and bring them to a place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. So Nehemiah asked God to remember the promise that God had made to Moses. Look, when we ask God to remember, it's not that God has somehow forgotten, right? When we ask God to hear and see, it's not like God hears like we hear. God doesn't see like we see. And God certainly doesn't forget like we forget. You know, God's not in heaven being like, now where did I put those keys to my kingdom? right? Nehemiah asked God to hear and to see and to remember. And God knows what Nehemiah is talking about. God's not like a man, apart from the person of Jesus, right, where, where he hears like we hear and sees like we see and remembers like we remember. But, but Nehemiah is using everything that he knows just to plead with God. And God knows what Nehemiah needs, so God remembering what he said to Moses is, is not really the impressive part. What's more remarkable is that Nehemiah remembered what God said to Moses, right? Because here's a man who has been disconnected from the promised land, disconnected from the blessings, disconnected from the laws of God, but he's going through his own personal renewal and he's recalling the promises of God to Israel. And he's saying, remember what you said, God. And if you said it, then God, would you do it? And these are the kinds of prayers that God loves to hear his people pray. Do you know that God loves it when you call him out on his word? If you want to pray bold prayers that God is pleased to answer, just pray this book. Say, God, you said it here. So Lord, would you do what you have said? God will do that. These are the kinds of prayers that God loves to hear and he's pleased to answer. And so here's the promise that Nehemiah calls God to keep and to fulfill. He said, God, you said that if we are unfaithful, you would scatter us among the peoples. And he's like, Lord, that has happened. For 70 years, we have been scattered. But God, you also said this, that if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them in and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. And so Nehemiah said, God, it seems as though you're saying here in your promise that if we repent and if we turn to you, if we confess our sins and you forgive us, that, that we as your chosen people, although we may be scattered in the farthest reaches, you will gather us back to the place that you have chosen. God, you will make your name dwell in Israel. God, show mercy to your people and bring us home. Now listen, 
That there, that promise to Moses is an old covenant promise. In some ways, it connects to us in the new covenant, but this is a specific promise that was for the people of Israel, for the Jewish people. And this is a promise for Israel that in history has been fulfilled on numerous occasions. But remember, Jesus came, and Jesus brought a covenant with him the new covenant that has better promises and better blessings. Yes, God has a special covenant with Israel and he will keep that covenant. But God has established a new covenant, a covenant that is open to all, that has a promise of mercy and grace that God will never forget. And the promise of the covenant is this, that Jesus died once and for all for sin and that if we repent and believe upon the name of Jesus, you will be saved. And that is for the farthest reaches of the earth. That is for all people, Jew or Gentile, whoever will come, whoever will believe and return to God, the exiles can come home, the outcasts can return. Amen? Amen. Jesus did what Nehemiah was calling for God to do to his people. Jesus allows us to return to God. Jesus showed mercy for our sins. Jesus gathers in the outcast. Jesus brings us to a place and makes his name dwell there. So this prayer of Nehemiah is all pointing to Jesus, who is the greater fulfillment of these promises. And this is just a prayer that resembles the kind of thing that Jesus would pray to his father for us. Jesus Unlike Nehemiah, see, Nehemiah prayed this prayer, but Nehemiah had sin. Nehemiah found himself among the multitude of sinners. But guess what? Jesus also found himself among the multitude of sinners. He was called the friend of sinners. Only the difference between Nehemiah and Jesus is that Nehemiah had sin. Jesus had no sin. And yes, Nehemiah could pray and embody the sins of his people by lamenting, but Jesus could truly embody the sins of his people in that he bore our sins in his own body on a tree as he suffered and died for us. So that the the sinners can come to God because God is pleased to receive the sacrifice of a sinless son. And so the offering that Nehemiah here makes In the end, the fifth point is that Nehemiah presents himself as a leader to the people of God. He's going to do something about the condition of the people. And so verse 10 and 11 says, They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive and your prayer, attentive to the prayer of your servants and the prayer of your servants to delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today to grant him mercy in the sight of this man. So we're on the fifth point. And in this fifth point, Nehemiah ends his prayer by offering something to God. You know, a prayer should always have an offering. Something you're willing to surrender to the Lord when you pray. Because prayer goes both ways. We can pray for God to do something for us, but we should always be willing when we pray that we would do something for God. 
And so here's what Nehemiah is offering in this prayer. Nehemiah makes his prayer and his offering is himself, his whole life. Nehemiah's carried a burden. He's prayed, he's fasted, he's lamented because he sees the need of the people in the city. An overwhelming need, a, a, a need that might have many obstacles along the way. But Nehemiah here is willing and ready to present himself as one who will take action. See, Nehemiah wasn't going to be an armchair quarterback. He wasn't going to be a sideline critic, just pointing the finger. Nehemiah was going to get in the game. Nehemiah says, God, you have some servants, and there are people that Nehemiah believes that will be responsive to his leadership. There are people that Nehemiah believes can be healed of shame and trouble, people who can come together under the banner of God's covenant, people who can work together to see a wall rebuilt and to see gates restored, to see the reproach of the people removed, to see sins forgiven. That Nehemiah is saying, I'm presenting myself as one who will lead my people because we want to see your redemption. God, we want to see your strong hand at work. And if you're going to do that, God, I understand that you need servants. And so, God, here I am. I am your servants. Here we are, your servants, willing to do, willing to offer our lives to be living sacrifices, to come and to serve the name of God and to fear the name of God. Give success to your servant today. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Guys, do you think that this prayer is a prayer that God will answer? I think so. See, Nehemiah has exalted God. Nehemiah has humbled himself. He has confessed his sins and the sins of his people. He has lamented over the people and their city. He has called upon God to keep his promises, and he has presented himself ready for action. Again, do you think that's a prayer that God will answer? Yes, I think so. So Nehemiah shows us what it should look like for any one of us to respond to the tragic conditions of our times. And his prayer of confession was the first step of action. He dealt with his sin by confessing it before God and he offered himself as one who is available to bring change. Church, as we live in a time of shame, trouble, brokenness, division, fear, corruption, sickness, as we live like exiles in this world, how are we as the people of God going to respond? I believe we should respond in the ways that Nehemiah did. I believe that if we want to see change in people, and if we want to see change in our cities, then in this order, this is what we must do. We must exalt God. We must humble ourselves. We must confess our own sins. We must lament over the sins of our people and call upon God's promises and present ourselves ready for action. That's how you're gonna see change, amen? amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this word. God, you pray, God, that you make us a people of prayer. God, lay a foundation for this church that if we would call out upon your name, 
for your people and for your cities, Lord God, that you would make your name great. So Lord, I'm just asking as we enter in a time of worship and prayer now, Lord, that you would just begin to lay that foundation. But God, we wouldn't just be safe and comfortable inside the walls of our church. Although the walls of a church are a place of safety, a place for us to come and to, and to get renewed and to get um, built up. God, we're meant to go back out. We're meant to go and to bring the change that we all would want to see. But God, let it start here in this house. That judgment begins with the house of God. Would it begin with us confessing our own sins? Would it begin with us saying, we have sinned against you, God? Your people, your church, we have sinned against you, God. Would you forgive us? Would you renew us? And then by that renewal, would it have a, 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 an effect upon those around us? God, would you make us a people would humble ourselves, and when we've been humbled, we just say, God, I am presenting myself ready for action. Use me as one of your servants. Let that be our prayer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.